When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in football. And of course, please beware, pay limitations of this particular podcast. You'll know what I mean if you're watching certain television stations these days. I mean, regarding with me, as always, is the guru, Mr. Duncan Castles, uh, safely ensconced at transfer headquarters. We've got amazingly long list of subjects to bring you uh, information on today. So we're going to rattle through, but also um, give you, of course, information that you don't currently possess. Now, dominating some of the general debate in the game over the last few days has been the future of Chelsea manager Frank Lampard, uh, whether or not uh, the five defeats in the last eight uh, could cost him his job at Stamford Bridge, despite, of course, his legendary status there as a player. Here at the transfer window, we understand that one of the major, if not the most major problem facing Lampard is a divided dressing room. Now, this is not the same as him having lost the dressing room. That's not the case. Uh, we are informed that the dressing was divided along two lines. That uh, one is, of course, uh, the young English players who Lampard has nurtured and brought through into the first team at Chelsea, who uh, the other players feel are more protected and more favoured than them. And by that, I mean, of course, the very expensive imports, Chelsea having spent around £213 million in the summer market, including Kai Havertz and Timo Werner, uh, Zakin Hiek as well, uh, who was brought in. And Duncan, there's a feeling apparently in the dressing room that uh, it's not just the fact that the English players um, are being treated differently to the foreign players, but also that there's a slight difficulty with regards to the um, general understanding of what Lampard's trying to do uh, in terms of tactics, formations, match setup and game planning, uh, which may have something to do with the fact that uh, some of his players, of course, uh, do not have English as a first language and also that some of them, especially uh, Havertz and Werner and Rudiger as well, obviously, um, have a common language in German uh, and therefore there seems to be a divide culturally amongst uh, some of the players. There's also um, the sense of, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, when 
teams lose football matches, players are not necessarily uh, the first to step up and take responsibility for the fact that they are part of that losing culture that has developed over the last few weeks. They would rather point a finger at someone else and normally that tends to be the manager in this case. Another problem, Duncan, one which you've identified and we've spoken about is this is a a squad at Chelsea that having had significant investment um, was not necessarily um, taken on board what the coach had asked for. And by that, uh, we mean that it's a top-heavy and unbalanced squad in terms of attacking players, especially uh, advanced attacking midfielders. Uh, where um, Chelsea are spoilt for choice with regards to um, the amount of players they have to play and uh, rotate in those positions, where Lampard has been asking for a dominant centre-back to play in the middle of a back three uh, for seven months now and still, still has yet to receive that player, despite uh, obviously the arrival of Thiago Silva from Paris Saint-Germain on a free contract. Um, Silva has been certainly impressive, but inconsistent. And Lampard continues to uh, lobby for another uh, centre-back, someone who can command the defence, tell other players where he needs them to be. Duncan, this is a very difficult situation for Chelsea because obviously Lampard's reputation at the club is one where the fans certainly would not want to see him sacked unnecessarily. But at the same time, you have the realistic and very um, pressing issue of not getting results and also uh, not competing at the level required uh, in order to gain Champions League football, never mind a trophy. Yeah, Chelsea is a club that sacks managers um, probably more than any big club uh, in certainly in English football, and they're actually quite proud of the success that sacking managers has brought them. There's um, you know a, a message that comes from Chelsea that the fact that they've been ready to turn over and change the man in charge when things go wrong has resulted in them winning multiple Premier Leagues and multiple European trophies, multiple other domestic trophies. Um, We are in a different circumstance. We've talked on the podcast about how few Premier League managers have been sacked during this COVID period. Um, I I shared a a phrase that uh, one um, prominent European coach used to describe COVID and saying that it was the vaccination for the losing manager keeping people in a job who uh, in normal circumstances would have gone. Um, So I think that helps Lampard. I think obviously his status helps Lampard. He is um, probably the most popular Chelsea player of recent eras, of the most um, successful era in the the club's history. So that is obviously in his favour. Fundamentally, the message coming from Chelsea is that they don't want to change, but um, that they're having to look at options because of the way results are going against them. And I mean, you've talked about the where they they stand, which is five defeats in eight Premier League games, um, just four points from the last fifteen, 
for Lampard. They've dropped from a position in which some people were talking about them as potential Premier League champions to eighth in what has to be said is a very compressed upper half of the Premier League table. So they're um, in eighth, 29 points. So they're 11 points behind Manchester United who are leading at present. Um, could be 12 points off the top if Manchester City win their game in hand to go top at the halfway stage of the season. Um, it's not irrecoverable if they can find a run of form. But they are a mess on the field. And I, and I think the Leicester City game is as good as an example of that as you can see. Um, it looked like Lampard decided that the way to end this slump Lampard and Jody Morris, his assistant coach, who we have to remember here is very important in terms of setting out the training, setting out the tactics. They're very much a managerial duo with Lampard being the, the figurehead, the, the guy who has the experience, the name, um, the understanding of football, but Jody Morris being the tactician, the trained coach, the guy who's got more experience running teams, albeit primarily at academy level and at Chelsea beforehand but they went into that game with a an incredibly unbalanced side um a midfield which did not have a proper natural uh, holding midfielder in it um Mateo Kovacic with Mason Mount beside him and Mason Mount is not someone who wants to sit in a two in front of the defense in midfield and didn't do that Kai Havertz playing as a number 10 and and kind of roaming around um, and not playing in a disciplined fashion defensively. Two fullbacks who were pushing beyond the midfield line on a frequent basis um, in Chilwell and, and Rhys James. Um, and centre-backs, and, and it, look, you, you've talked about how Lampard had asked repeatedly for a centre-back, prioritised that in recruitment, has not got it. He's chopped and changed amongst his options. There was a point in this season where Antonio Rudiger looked like he was completely out of consideration. He's now starting centre-back alongside Thiago Silva. There's an argument that he is probably the best um, physical defender of the ones that Lampard has to choose from. Um, but it's not a sound partnership. You've got Thiago Silva leading the defence who doesn't speak a great deal of English. He's in his first season in the Premier League. Um, he's at the tail end of what has been an exceptional career. If you don't protect these guys, and, and that's what they did against Leicester City, there was almost zero protection for those two centre-backs. And you do that against a team like Leicester City, who are brilliant on the counter-attack and very well organised through the rest of the team and work very hard. Um, the outcome is likely to be the outcome they saw. And if you're going to pick a, a, a match to go for glory and to try and uh, outgun the opposition by putting all your attackers on the field, which is essentially what Lampard seemed to do, I think Leicester City are about the worst opponents you can choose in the Premier League to do that against. And, and you know, so it turned out. Now, normally, managers in trouble don't get away with decisions like that for very long. Um, information I'm hearing from people in the camp is that the way Lampard was behaving after that game was indicative of an individual who felt he was in trouble and might not be there much longer. I think, Ian, you can talk to his state of mind and, and his determination to put it right. But um, I think he, like everyone else, is aware that Chelsea is not a club 
that suffers bad results for a sustained period of time. Yeah, it's very true, Duncan. Um, look, Frank Lampard is the first person to um, admit that he would never have been appointed Chelsea manager in the first place uh, with his lack of experience of management. One season at Derby County where they failed to get promoted and lost the playoff final. Um, if he didn't have the reputation as a player that he has at Chelsea. And very important, and it's interesting you mentioned his name, Jody Morris, um, being his number two, someone who spent uh, eight years in the academy at Chelsea coaching the youth teams uh, to great success, both in domestic and European competitions, was a very strong card uh, for Lampard in terms of gaining the position of head coach because of uh, the admiration there was for Morris and his work at Chelsea prior to uh, his departure with Lampard as number two to go to Derby County. Now, on that basis, I think Lampard's comments after the game against Leicester City about, say, when he said, uh, that's not my decision to make, i.e. if he loses his job, um, that's up to the club. There are some things you can't control. I think equals out what he admitted in the first place, which was, I realise that I'm in this position because not of my reputation as a coach, but mostly because of my relationship and success with the club. So there is something of a reckoning um, happening or either, or maybe on the horizon. And Lampard is a very pragmatic and realistic person. Uh, he, he knows um, that if results are not going his way, that, you know, the, the phrase is, the one thing you can be sure of is in this job is that you will get the sack at some point. So um, I think it's important as well to note that um, Frank is a man of great integrity and loyalty um, to the club, but also to his players um, and to the owner, Roman Abramovich. So if he felt that things were beyond his ability to turn it around and fix, then he would not have any gripes about losing his job. Uh, however, that doesn't mean to say that he doesn't believe he can turn it around and that if he's given a little bit more time, then he hopes to be able to show that that will be the case. And to be fair, we have seen in this Premier League season so far, Duncan, um, many times where uh, Liverpool, Manchester City, Manchester United have all had periods uh, of downturn and then came back from them to once again be challengers, etc. Uh, even Leicester City had a, had a dip as well and are now finding themselves in, in a fine vein of form. I guess, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk um, about there being a German manager lined up, whether it's to Big Tam Tuchel or a friend, um, or Julian Nagelsmann, or even Ralph Ranick. Uh, what I can say is that someone close to one of the German-speaking players in the dressing room um, said to me that uh, the German players themselves don't necessarily understand the nuances of Lampard's team talks, the tactical um, uh, plan for a particular game, 
and then speak to themselves in their own native language afterwards and complain about the fact that they're not getting the message. Uh, now, that's obviously part of the division that we've uh, reported in the podcast. Um, as I said, players will often, when losing matches, look to point the finger at someone else to blame uh, and that's what causes these schisms. There's no suggestion, and it's important to stress this, that Lampard is disliked or that he's lost the dressing room. That's not the case. He is very well liked by his players and the players want to and want to have confidence and trust in him. But at the same time, when results don't go your way, then again, that's when things start to unravel in football. So um, his problem is uh, is twofold. Um, first and foremost, uh, restore winning ways and get results. And second, augment that with reuniting a dressing room, which feels like uh, it's split in two between the English players and the non-English players um, at this moment in time, whereby uh, there is a lack of uh, continuity and unity amongst uh, the, the team and the playing squad, which of course is absolutely essential if you're going to be successful as a football team. Look, you're right to point out it's a strange season. I think we have a record number of clubs who've been top of the Premier League. I think nine separate clubs have been top at, so, at some point so far this season. Um, obviously, you have issues with the, the density of games, um, with the COVID environment, with uh, restricted pre-seasons, with going from the end of the last season pretty much into the, the start of the next season. Um, you have the big difference of not having supporters in the stadium, which I think changes the dynamic of football a lot. Um, so it's not irrecoverable for sure, but there are fundamental problems. I, I, you, know, you, you talk about the recruitment issues and, and I think the imbalance in the squad is obvious. Um, and the, the way they often play is obvious that it looks like quite often a group of individual talents who are not um, playing to a coherent system, who are not working together. Um, in the Leicester game, we saw a concession from a, a set piece where Wilfred Ndidi, I think, had 10 yards between him and the, the nearest Chelsea defender when he finally got the ball down to shoot at the edge of the area. That should not be happening. We've seen those kind of org organisational issues, I think, throughout Lampard and Morris's um, time in charge of the club. They they are weak at set pieces. You know, um, more experienced coaches have noted that they there are some basic errors being made in the in the way the team is set up and things that can be exploited. And you know, the general setup against Leicester City was an obvious example of that. Those things need to change. But you also have to note that that recruitment, that that pursuit of these second line forwards that Marina Granovskaya likes and has made money in the transfer market before being successful with buying those instead of buying what the manager had identified as being fundamentally important, which was a top centre back. And I think is obvious to any kind of neutral observer, they need that, has built a noose um, for Lampard's neck. And at the moment, he seems to be putting his head in it. 
It's whether he can get himself out of it and uh, and turn it around is is the question mark. In terms of replacements, yeah, um, Julian Nagelsmann has been mentioned. You have Thomas Tuchel out of work and available. You also have Max Allegri out of work and very keen to get back into work. Um, and Allegri is being pursued by Roma at the moment, which is a job he probably wouldn't have taken in normal circumstances. But my understanding is he's looking at that seriously just now because he's been out of work for um, over a season and a half now and feels the original plan was to take a one-year sabbatical. It's gone over that time, so um, he could be persuaded. Um, he's also waiting to see what will happen with Real Madrid and Zinedine Zidane, who is in trouble once again. He seems to be in trouble on a basically uh, a biannual basis. Um, my understanding is that as of last week, there had been no communication from Chelsea to Allegri. Um, were that communication to come, I think he would be genuinely interested in that job. Other options? Um, well, I don't think you should rule out someone like Brendan Rodgers. Um, who obviously started um, his coaching career at Chelsea and I think could be tempted to go to a place like that and whose status is is very high at present. Um, Chelsea had looked at Nuno Espirito Santo quite seriously before appointing Lampard and Wolves are not doing as well this season, but there are you know fairly clear reasons why that's happening. And uh, certainly, if you want to sort out the organisation of the team, then Espirito Santo would be a, would be an obvious choice. And then maybe there are some other left field um, appointments, people who are out of work at present and could be appointed on an interim basis to see how they get on um, to go to the end of the season. Um, but it needs to be fixed quickly if Lampard's going to stay in the job. And we will monitor that situation for you all, of course, and bring you the news first. We do pride ourselves on um, hopefully uh, giving you the information you don't have and allowing you to have an insight into what's going on in football before anyone else. And it is uh, with some, uh, you know, pride, I suppose you could call it, uh, as well as a good grace that um, this week's news regarding the uh, new um, information on the European Super League, we can put claim to telling you about certainly over the past year and more, uh, bringing you that in terms of the background and indeed the intentions of Europe's top clubs with regards to forming a ESL European Super League. The uh, details which have emerged um, this week um, in terms of what might be the case in terms of financial uh, as well as logistical uh, details of said league uh, have been very interesting, Duncan, and have brought about an unprecedented um, I guess you could call it, a, uh, it was a press statement, but it was also uh, almost a contract of agreement between FIFA and UEFA, as well as the six confederations who uh, said, mm, wanted to put a message across that they would not be in favour of this, but at the same time left just little bits of loopholes with regards to the idea that, well, it may well happen against our will, so we might have to um, give in and uh, try 
to work with people rather than against them who are organizing this. But let's get down the nitty gritty, Duncan. We're talking about £310 million for founder members, 15 founder members, just to join, just to sign up. How significant is that? First of all, the percentage of revenue that that represents for clubs who, let's face it, are in a difficult situation right now in terms of the pandemic and the financial environment they find themselves in, both keeping themselves afloat, but also paying wage bills and transfers. But not just that, the potential broadcast revenue increase that they would then benefit from because this proposal isn't about leaving your domestic league. It's about playing midweek games, i.e. Champions League, European League, Europa League, as well as playing your domestic league. So therefore, effectively, you get double bubble. It's the best of both worlds and uh, the financial benefits that will come with that. Yeah, you can go through the structure and you see what it is about is giving a large chunk of money to the biggest clubs in European football and guaranteeing them that money um, indefinitely. That's the way the thing is structured. Um, and I think it is important that it's structured in the way that they have the European Super League as a midweek competition um, of 18 to 23 games per season, depending on whether you make it to the final stage or not. And they get to stay in their domestic leagues. Um, we have when we've been talking about this European Super League, we've talked about how the, the the kind of decision point, the crunch clubs to get involved would be the English clubs because the Premier League makes more broadcast money than any other league in Europe. And lo and behold, this um, proposal has 15 founder members or 16 founder members. In the 15 founder member structure, six of them would come from the Premier League, obviously the big six clubs. Manchester United, Manchester City, Arsenal, Chelsea, um, Tottenham and Liverpool and Manchester United particularly involved in this, the Glazer family along with Florentino Perez in, in pushing this proposal. Three clubs from Spain, three clubs from Italy, two from Germany, one from France, guess who that's going to be and then five or four annual qualifiers um, on merit performances from their domestic leagues. Now you mentioned the money you get for signing up. It's They're proposing 3.5 billion euros of an infrastructure grant to be shared only amongst the founder members, not amongst the annual qualifiers. And they would be allowed to spend that infrastructure grant on stadia, training facilities, or, and this is the important part, to replace lost stadium-related revenues due to COVID-19, which is essentially saying you can take all that money and put it in your bank accounts and spend it as you like, because by the time this happens, each of them will have lost um, that amount of money to COVID-19. Um, there are elements similar to the proposal for reforming the Premier League that we saw um, pushed forward by Manchester United and other top clubs and, and drop away recently in that the rights to four of the games in the European Super League would stay exclusively with the clubs to sell on their um, uh, internal um, media platforms. Uh, and we talked uh, when we discussed that in the podcast about how much extra revenue that can be worth to the bigger clubs um, with large international fan bases. Uh, the sharing of the broadcast revenue, which you're right to say would 
can be expected to surpass what these clubs easily surpass what these clubs earn from the Premier League and the, the Champions League at present is again biased towards founder members. So 32.5% of the revenue raised by the league each year would go to founder members exclusively. Another 32.5% would be split amongst the 20. So that's the annual qualifiers get start getting access to the money and the re- remainder paid um, in the same manner as the Premier League's merit-based system, which is saying if you finish at the top, um, you get more money. Obviously, the clubs who start with more income, which will be the founder members, are more likely to be at the top. So again, that's pushing the money to the established clubs. There's another 15% of money um, that will be distributed from commercial revenues based on what is called club awareness, which presumably means Manchester United, um, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Maybe Juventus saying, look, we we are the big names in European football, so we are going to get more of that money than you slightly smaller clubs and certainly of you clubs um, who qualify on an annual basis. Another way of keeping the money to themselves is that the, the qualification for the new expanded FIFA Club World Cup would be determined by this European Super League. So the top 12 clubs would go to that. So they would get access to the, the big broadcast revenues that are expected to be generated by that competition. Just to make sure that nobody loses any money out of this from the big clubs, they've, uh, they've designed their own version of financial fair play where there would be a cap of 55% of your annual revenues to be spent on wages, transfers, and agent fees. So um, you're stopping overspending and, and, comp- and, and too much competition overspending over transfer fees and player wages. And you're, again, the, the clubs at the bottom end there, those annual qualifiers who've got lower revenues would be much more restricted in their budget and they wouldn't be able essentially to gamble on high spend in one year um, to try and get themselves up and and stay in that division. Um, You mentioned FIFA and UEFA and and the statement, and that is an interesting part in that Florentino Perez had been working with uh, Gianni Infantino, talking to Gianni Infantino about this, his project and trying to get FIFA on board because it, it is obviously a... If you want to break away from UEFA, if you want to take more of that money from the Champions League and keep it to the top clubs in football, which is what this plan is about, it would help to have another of the major governing bodies on board and switching to FIFA um, from a political perspective, and FIFA trying to get as much money um, into their own coffers uh, through Infantino to keep Infantino's power base would have been uh, a way of doing that. But Infantino signed this document Again, the devil in the detail of the document, when they're saying that, um, that the, the international confederations would be against this and that any player getting involved, uh, being involved in the European Super League would be banned from, for example, your European Championship or the World Cup, that's the threat. But later in is this bit of detail where it says, in this respect, the confederations recognise the FIFA Club World Cup in its current new format as the only worldwide club competition. While FIFA recognises the club competitions organised by the confederations as the only club continental competitions. What Infantino has got there is an acceptance from UEFA and other confederations who were not happy with the 
FIFA Club World Cup expanding and taking up more of the calendar and, and grabbing broadcast revenues, that its new format is accepted by those federations. So he has got his additional slice of the pie. He hasn't actually said anything on record uh, about the European Super League. He's just signed this statement. Maybe I'm being cynical, but if the bigger clubs um, proceed with this, and I, 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 as we've discussed in this podcast many times, this is kind of an inevitable direction of travel of world football, of European football at present. I would not be surprised at some point if Infantino and FIFA get on board with this uh, Super League if UEFA fail to get on board with it. I go back, Duncan, to um, uh, Roger Mitchell, uh, the f- one of the founding members of the SPFL, uh, who was uh, one of the first people uh, to uh, effectively say he was certain that this was going to happen, and he did so on the Transfer Window podcast. And he said at the time, um, look, there are two types of product in the world, and he gave a cinematic analogy. He said there's box office and there's art house, and inevitably football will be divided into one and the other. Now, to me, FIFA, or any other confederation for that matter, threatening to ban players from playing in if you like the European Championships or the Copa America or indeed the FIFA World Cup, seems just a little bit of a false uh, um, falsehood in terms of they're saying what player would risk his career uh, and not playing in those competitions. I would flip that and say, would FIFA risk their competition by not having the best players in the world playing at the World Cup. And I think this is just a little bit of a preamble, a bit of posturing by uh, certainly UEFA and FIFA and the other confederations, but in particular the the biggest and most powerful confederation in UEFA and certainly FIFA. Uh, They're kind of saying what they need to say to satisfy the majority of their members, who obviously would be against this. But what will do? What will happen is we'll get to the point where all of them will say, "Look, we can't resist this any longer because if we do, we'll all be worse off if we don't allow this to happen, because these clubs and these players will withdraw themselves from our competitions, and that is not going to benefit everyone. That's only going to benefit them, those particular clubs and players." And therefore, what we need to do is rather than ban and have a war, we need to find a compromise, unite, and in doing so, get a way whereby all of the clubs, all of the member associations can benefit from some of the finance uh, that is going into this. Because clearly, uh, an investment of $3.5 is incredible in football in one go. And if we look at what the broadcast rights are at the moment for individual uh, leagues for the top five leagues in Europe, and then combine them with the broadcast rights to Champions League and Europa League, as well as the fact that the World Cup and FIFA, FIFA's biggest income source 
at this moment in time is from broadcast rights for the World Cup finals. So none of those institutions can afford to lose money on the broadcast rights. And if this is the way football's going, and we, I think, all have to admit that this is the way football's going, then surely taking part, finding a compromise and earning uh, at least some of the money and taking a slice of the profits in terms of the money being earned, not just in broadcast, but sponsorship as well, then that will enable both FIFA and UEFA and the other confederations to be, remain solvent and profitable, um, as well as maintain the integrity of domestic competitions as well. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right to highlight that it's a kind of an idle threat from an empty threat from FIFA. What the World Cup is their biggest revenue generator. If you take out the top 20 teams in football and all of the players they have and those top 20 teams having more money than they ever had before to sign the best players and remove them from the World Cup, it is not the World Cup we we know. And And how many players of these very top players, if actually asked to make that decision, would say, okay, I'm I'm going to leave Barcelona, Real Madrid, Juventus, Manchester United, and I'm going to go and play in one of the uh, rump clubs in the domestic leagues so I can play the World Cup once every four years or play European Championship um, once every four years. So for basically for two um, major uh, championships uh, across a four-year period, you 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 hand over that massive earning power and that ability to win um, club titles. I I don't see many players uh, going that way. I mean, you could talk about perhaps Cristiano Ronaldo who wants to win a World Cup before he uh, finishes playing, but he also wants to break every um, record for scoring uh, that there's been in football. And, and for longevity. So to do that, he needs to remain in the club game. I think also important to talk about here is UEFA's response. So UEFA know they have to change the Champions League um, and they, they're starting uh, and have built up proposals to change. And you know, there's a suggestion that as early as next month, they could announce a new system to try and satisfy uh, the strongest clubs in Europe and keep them on board with UEFA. The system that they're pushing at the moment is one which I think every football fan should examine carefully and think whether you want to see the Champions League, um, which in my view produces the best football uh, in terms of technical and competitive quality that we've ever seen once it gets into its knockout rounds. Like, yes, there's a problem with the group stages, but in the knockout rounds, it's exceptional. If you want to see it replaced with a system, which they, they call the Swiss system, um, and it would apply to Champions League, Europa League, and the new um, third uh, tier uh, European competition they want to set up. And there would be 32 or 36 clubs in a single division in this Champions League. Um, who are drawn to play 10 opponents of varying strength based on seeding. And so they're not all, they're not playing home and away. They're not playing um, everyone in the division. They're, you have a seeding structure which would um, change the set of opponents for each club. And then the top teams in that league would go through to the knockout rounds. Um, they also are suggesting that rather than have pure merit from 
domestic leads determining all the qualifying places for the new Champions League, that two places would be reserved for what they call historically successful clubs who happen to have failed to qualify that year. So like an insurance policy, for example, for a Manchester United who um, since Ferguson has left have, have basically missed the Champions League on average every second year um, or a Milan in Italy. Um, do you really want that switch of the Champions League to a system in which um, a, a draw at the start of the the competition uh, based on a seeding system determines who you play through the league? Everyone doesn't play everyone else in that league. And then uh, the ones who come out best from what isn't a proper round robin go through to the knockout rounds. I think they're in danger of uh, of of fundamentally damaging what has been a strong product. But again, interestingly, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, Bayern Munich's chairman, apparently is in favour of this and, and recently said that the group stages have become boring um, and, and thinks that uh, this might be a good solution. Again, I think you have to look behind the, the motivations of these individuals and perhaps when someone like Rummenigge is encouraging UEFA to go down a line which... I don't think would be good for the competition. Perhaps what he really wants to see happen is the competition reducing value and therefore uh, the support for the kind of European Super League structure that those big clubs like Bayern Munich are proposing increase. So um, it becomes a, a smoother transition to that situation where they get more money than everyone else and they are uh, kept in that position of strength and perpetuity. Well, as Duncan uh, goes on to his phone and calls Ansu Fati to entice him to Dundee United in order he can play in the World Cup finals, uh, <laughs> rather, because obviously Barcelona would not be involved if they join the ESL. We're going to give you a, a fairly concise roundup of the latest transfer news. Uh, we're going to start with Arsenal. Uh, Duncan, um, seeming... Set, I mean, they've taken their time about it, but they're starting to roll uh, in terms of offloading, um, obviously, Mesut Ozil and Shogdan Mustafi, but now beginning to recruit as well. Uh, Martin Odegaard of Real Madrid is very close to agreeing a loan deal to join Arsenal in this window, a player who was hailed when he joined Madrid um as one of the most talented young midfielders in world football. They've also, uh, today, Friday, uh, completed the loan setting of Matty Ryan from Brighton as a backup goalkeeper to Bernd Leno. Um, good business, Duncan? I think uh, getting Matty Ryan as a backup goalkeeper certainly is is good business. Um, I'm surprised that he has uh, been pushed out of favour as so many Brighton players have been by uh, the current manager and uh, and being allowed to leave. So I think Arsenal have certainly strengthened their their squad by bringing Ryan in as a, as a backup uh, in goal. And, and, you know, Bernd Leno is not the strongest number one choice in the Premier League. So uh, perhaps Ryan will get an opportunity to take that shirt should um, Leno uh, hand it over to him at some point during the season and, and retain it. Um, Udegaard, an interesting one. They've... 
um, obviously dumped Mesut Ozil finally and uh, and managed to dispatch a percentage of his wages uh, to get him to go to Fenerbahce. So that long campaign by Arsenal, um, partly uh, driven, I think, by the Chinese government and their um, actions in taking Arsenal off television and and uh, and uh, putting pressure on the Premier League when Ozil. Um, quite rightly, justifiably supported the, the case of the, the Uyghurs in, in China, um, has run its course and and, and he's, he's got bored of, of waiting till the end of his contract and insisting that he gets paid the full amount and, and saying that he's available to play and, and has moved to Turkey. Um, they have Emil Smith-Rowe uh, performing very well at this, this point um, in a creative role in midfield. We told you they've been looking for that kind of cross between a uh, a number eight and a number ten. Um, Udegaard did very well um, on loan uh, at Real Sociedad last season, um, so well that uh, Madrid called him back from the what was supposed to be the second year of loan, and he was expecting to get proper playing time. He's had very little of it, um, just two hundred and thirty-two minutes in total in uh, La Liga under Zidane and uh, an Arsenal pursued that quite aggressively they put an initial offer in this week and then yesterday came back with a second offer to to try and persuade him not to go to a Spanish club for the rest of the season and, and come to Arsenal and, um, I think it's very interesting to see how much playing time he gets um, they'll probably balance the two players off against each other because Smith-Rowe is, is young and I'd be fascinated to see how well Udegaard can perform at, at Premier League level he he scored seven goals and and uh, contributed six assists Sociedad last season um you think you would uh, you would have the opportunity um in a stronger team like Arsenal to if he gets the game time to perhaps better that so very little um happening so far in this window in the Premier League Duncan um Something which we predicted, uh, given the current financial climate, etc. But uh, not just Arsenal, but Brighton, of all clubs, is one who have moved in the market to seal the transfer of the Ecuadorian midfielder Moises Cacido. Um We understand that the player is due to arrive in the UK in the next 24 hours uh, and will have a medical um, and then a decision will be made as to whether or not he goes out on loan. Uh, he's still a very young player, uh, 19 years of age, um, playing currently independent Del Val, um, or whether he is integrated to the Brighton squad uh, with a view to perhaps getting game time between now and the end of the season. Um, this is a player who is much watched by many clubs, Duncan, and a transfer that we flagged up here in the Transfer Window podcast a couple of weeks ago. Um, Brighton seemed to have won the race, as it were. Uh, lots of clubs were interested in him. Um, in terms of the player himself, can you see him fitting into the Brighton first team at this moment in time? Or do you think it's more likely he'll go out on loan? From what I understand, it's dependent on um, whether he can get a work permit. And uh, when we talked about Caicedo before, we explained that, that we basically have an interim system for um, foreign players coming into uh, the Premier League and the Championship at present, which is a, a compromise. It's not supposed to be the long-term post-Brexit solution and clubs are not sure um, 
exactly what they have to do to get work permits for these players and and whether they'll be approved or not. So my understanding is Brighton have set up this um, loan to Union Saint-Gioire in Belgium should they not get the work permit, should should it be approved, then they will think about keeping him at the club um, and uh, allowing him to train with the team and possibly get into you know a team that's struggling at the moment. Um, so, look, if he if he plays in the fashion he's been playing for Ecuador and he's been playing in the, the uh, Libertadores Cup in South America, there is no question that he should be impressive enough on the training ground um, to give him to get an opportunity in Brighton's first team and his strengths are physicality box to box running um, an energetic game so I think it is his basic um, skill set is quite suited to um, getting into a Premier League game earlier than other players who are, who are more dependent on technical skills and, and maybe have more problems with the, the pace and energy of the Premier League. Um, you're right, a lot of clubs were interested in this player. Uh, Manchester United were in a position where they could have signed the player. He uh, is on record as, as saying that it's the club he, he wanted to play for. Um, I think a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the complexities of the deal, the amount of agents who were involved, um, third-party ownership issues. I think Brighton have been extremely patient here and uh, and cut through a lot of uh, complexities and, uh, and made a bet on a player. Transfer fees not particularly high. $5 million. I think there's substantial um, additional payments involved. Um, look, if he succeeds in the Premier League, we're going to be watching a, a very special talent, according to a lot of uh, South American football observers. And so let's hope he does. Indeed. As I said, Brighton, one of the only clubs in the Premier League so far to delve into the market. Although, I think probably, Duncan, we can expect a flurry of activity in the final few days of the window. That seems to be uh, the historical way of things, although not as much money spent as we've seen in recent years. Tighter tighter deals, yeah. There's, I mean, there's a lot of clubs trying to get players on loan or um, loans with options to buy. Um, you know, you've got clubs like Southampton looking for backup fullbacks, young backup fullbacks, um, which is a, a a very unusual demand to have in the transfer market. Usually if you're, if you're trying to get a, a backup player um, midway through a season, um, it's usually an experienced one rather than a young one. There are odd things happening in the market. There are clubs like West Ham United who have a real problem to solve because they've uh, sold their only recognised centre forward. They've got a bit of cash and are trying to to get a player in um, under pressure from David Moyes, who's done very well with uh, with West Ham this season. So I would I would expect them to to bring someone in, whether they end up with the compromise of of Josh King, um, who will be out of contract at uh, Bournemouth in the summer and available for free anyway. Um, that's probably not quite Moyes's preferred option. Wolves um, bringing in a striker, they're a good way down the line to signing uh, William Jose um, on a loan with an option to buy. Um, Damari Gray, I think, is still an interesting 
subject. We one we've flagged up in the podcast several times. He's out of contract in the summer, very unhappy at his treatment from Brendan Rogers at Leicester. And uh, my understanding determined to leave uh, in the summer, which Leicester are aware of, and they are trying to sell to now to get some money in. Um, Leverkusen are trying to agree a fee with Leicester to get the player immediately, but the strength of interest from other clubs is such, I think it's going to be hard for Leverkusen to convince Gray that he's better moving in January than waiting for the summer when clubs like Southampton would like to take him on a free transfer, allow him to stay in the Premier League. Um, and also interest from Borussia Dortmund, which I think is significant given where Damari Gray plays uh, and given the the... The, a certain English winger at Borussia Dortmund who was the subject of um, quite substantial transfer interest in the summer and has had a very disgruntled season which you would have thought would uh, accelerate the process of him um, leaving in this coming summer. Who could you possibly be referring to? No idea. <laughs> the famous or now infamous Jaden Sancho, of course. Uh that would be very, very uh, uh, interesting to keep tracking that one, Duncan, with regards to uh, Demari Gray as well, of course. So the uh, transfer news has been well and truly rounded up. Uh, we're going to just mention the FA Cup's tie of the round uh, this weekend, which of course is Liverpool versus Man United, a reprise of that Premier League meeting already this week, which was a bit of a snow draw, it has to be said. Duncan, thoughts uh, on this one and who is it more important to, yeah, Liverpool or United? It's intriguing to see who the managers think it's more important to. Um, Liverpool obviously need to turn things around. Uh, they lost that uh, record unbeaten run at home of 68 matches. Um, unfortunately, I think you can say, I think, uh, again, they had a lot of decisions go against them. It's, this season has been the polar opposite of last season, where a majority of refereeing subse- subjective decisions were going in their favour and that amazing run to the Premier League title this season. I think they've had a, probably a harder um, set of, of judgments and VAR and on, on field officials than any other team in the Premier League. Um, not scored for four Premier League games. Um, first time since uh, Gerard Houllier was in charge. And we talked in the last podcast after that Manchester United game how they were overthinking things and uh, a lack of confidence in front of goal and we saw that against Burnley and, and I think we basically saw Jurgen Klopp come out and say yes that is exactly part of the problem and they're not they're not doing the right things on the field and making the right decisions when they get into dangerous positions and to be fair to Klopp um, held himself responsible and said it was his uh, fault that he wasn't communicating what they should be doing uh, correctly to the players. What do Liverpool do in, in terms of turning it around? Look, beating Manchester United, scoring a goal, scoring enough goals to win a game, I think would be very important to them. So from, from that perspective, you can see Klopp putting a strong team out. From Manchester United's perspective, uh, Solskjaer still hasn't won a trophy. Uh, at Manchester United, they're on their longest um, trophy drought for uh, a substantial period of time. Um, 
he came out of the game at Anfield at the weekend saying they felt they'd missed an opportunity to take advantage of a team who were struggling and who had injuries. Um, he played very uh, conservatively in that match. He sat deep and tried to use pace to score in the counter-attack. Um, Klopp talked about how frustrating it was to play against a team of world-class players who were defending um, with their lives and, and looking to score goals on the break. Um, I think Solskjaer has been quite hurt by the criticism of the way he set his team up in that game because if you look at his press conference today, he was asked about that and he, he insisted that his team attacked every time they got the ball um, and he said, the thought that we weren't attacking is for me completely something I don't understand. We kept giving it away. It was the quality of what we did that we need to do better. We tried to press them high, which wasn't easy, and they played well. And then um, tried to argue that the reason it was so difficult to play against Liverpool was because they had five midfielders on the field, plus a, a keeper who's very capable. And that kind of confused me because I thought, is he calling Mo Salah or Sadio Mane or Roberto Firmino a midfielder? I know he's actually referring to the fact that Fabinho and Jordan Henderson were playing at centre-back and, and arguing that it was an advantage for Liverpool from the perspective of uh, controlling the play that they had five uh, recognised midfielders on the pitch, even though two of them were playing at centre-back. He said he'll rotate for this game, um, but he said they, they will have a strong enough team to proceed. Um, it, you have to say, is another opportunity for him. Um, we, Liverpool's weaknesses are manifest at present. Their confidence is low. Um, he has not even scored more than one goal against one of the big six teams in, in domestic competition this season. Um, the only uh, strike was a penalty um, in a 6-1 defeat against Tottenham. It's about time they sorted that out and uh, and added to the, the confidence they have in, in other games. So... Um, Again, as we said before the uh, the league match, it's going to be fascinating to see what the two managers choose to do and whether they change it after the outcome of the of the last game. Well, you got the result right in the last game, Duncan. If uh, if not score, um, do you want to do your Mystic Meg and and predict it for us again? <laughs> you go first, Ian. What do you think it will be? I think Manchester United might nick it. I think they, their need for a trophy is greater. I think Solskjaer will put that thought into his players' minds and say to them, look, we need to get over the line here. So beating Liverpool would be a big thing. Um, I don't think they converted what were a couple of good chances in the league match. And uh, yeah, so I'm going yeah, to not sit on the fence. Um, and go for Manchester United by goal. I think I think it's it's very hard to call for the reasons I've just described because it's hard to work out what kind of team they're they're going to put out in this match. But I fancy Liverpool to win this one by a single goal. Oh, people, there we go. Disagreement in the ranks here at transfer window towers. Uh, let's see who comes out on top when we uh, reconvene for next week's podcast. However. The Liverpool conversation takes us very nicely on to this week's Donkey Award. And as ever, Jurgen Klopp is the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, the man who gave us 
the nickname for Kaiser Duck Johnny McFarlane when he once asked the question who would win a fight between uh, Jurgen Klopp, 12 Angry Ducks or a horse. Please, if you want to find out what the hell that means, just go into the archive <laughs> and you will be able you'll be able to dig it out. Uh, but for today And you still won't understand anything. And you so. probably still won't understand it. No. No, the Twelve Angry Ducks one is a brilliant one. I don't know. It's maybe something to do with the, that famous Hollywood movie. Anyway, uh is the Jurgen Klopp Award for Don't Pick a Fight You Can't Win. This of course refers to the the altercation in the tunnel at half-time at Anfield uh, during Liverpool's defeat uh, to Burnley on Thursday night when Klopp and Sean Dyche went at it. Uh, lots of pointing fingers, thankfully. No violence and no uh, humans nor indeed ducks were harmed uh, in the making of that particular bit of drama. So... Uh, we decided that Jurgen Klopp picked a fight with a ginger ninja uh, and it was one he wasn't going to win. And so now we're going to open the golden envelope to find out what the nominations are for other people who picked fights they could not win. Hang on, just to open the envelope here. Very nice too. Right, Duncan, for your delectation and indeed your judgment, we have... Roy Keane versus Patrick Vieira in the infamous Arsenal-Manchester United match where, uh, unfortunately, it's not allowed anymore, but we still had a camera in the tunnel and Keane went at it with Vieira uh, because Vieira had gone at it with Gary Neville and Keane uh, infamously said, pick on someone your own size, I'll see you out there, I'll see you out there. Uh, probably one of the only battles that Keane would have picked that he probably would not, might not have won was against Patrick Vieira. So there we've got Keane versus Vieira. Uh, per probably my personal favourite is uh, Nigel Winterburn versus Paolo Di Canio. Uh, please, as I often say, if you haven't seen this, just search it on YouTube. It's when Di Canio pushed... Uh, Paul Alcock over um, and obviously got a 12-match ban, or it may be more than that, actually, uh, for doing so. But as he made his way off the pitch, having been red-carded, Winterburn goes to basically confront him and, and size him up face-to-face. -face. And when Decanio moves his head even slightly in Winterburn's direction, Winterburn runs away like a scared fox caught in the headlines. headlights. Um so have a look at that one. And the last one comes from this week's round of Premier League matches. Uh, Duncan referred to it earlier. Frank Lampard versus Leicester City. Um, probably not the most tactically uh, astute uh, decision that Frank Lampard has ever made to go at Leicester City in the way he did. Duncan, it's over to you. Well, I'm intrigued to know what Winterburn was doing. Was he like defending his, his alliance with the referee in that case? And this is, seems a bizarre one to square up to uh, De Canio for. Um, Keane versus Vieira. Uh, yeah, we would like to watch that. Maybe with Cesc Fabregas in the middle with some pizza added <laughs> to to the event. Um, but I think having uh, gone into some detail on, on how bad uh, Lampard and, and Morris's tactics were against Leicester um, at the start of this podcast, uh, picking a fight, you're not going to win um, going against Leicester with that setup and and uh, and that amount of attackers on the pitch in the hope that you're going to overpower them and and turn your season around. I think Frank has to win it uh, this week. 
Well, I think we have a new winner, Duncan. Frank Lampard, I'm pretty sure, has never received the uh, very, very prestigious gold statuette of you. Um, <laughs> so we shall be packaging that up and sending it off to Frank. Um, hopefully he'll receive it at the training ground because he's still there. Um, so that's it for this week's podcast. And if you've liked what you've heard, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. You can subscribe to the Transfer Window podcast on YouTube, turn on notifications, and you'll be first to know when the next one's been published. And of course, please engage with us on our social media platforms. We are at Transfer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And individually, Duncan's at Duncan Castles and I'm at Garbo SJ. That's it for this week. We'll be back with you next. Until then, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.